don't just think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as someone in the compassion creation business.、Mm. And I, I do think if you create art, whether that's visual art or music or literature, film,、um, you know, whatever you create, if it if it can give your empathy muscles、uh, a bit of a workout, I think that's a good thing. But also, if it can. Be sort of a, a heartfelt education,、mm-hmm. and you you take that art and you inject that into a body of society, and I, I do think in a tiny way you can inoculate that society. The Chinese Lady. It's an extraordinary play by Lloyd Su. It's about the life of Afeng Moi and her far-lasting effect on the individual and collective psyches in this country. Afang Moi was the first Chinese lady to come to the United States back in 1834, the age of 14. She was originally put on display in Pearl's Museum in New York as a kind of performance piece, and would later tour the country for what was advertised as the education and entertainment of the audience. Charleston actually was one of those cities she's toured.、Um, she was one of these amazing figures in history that went fairly unnoticed, but in a way has dissolved literally into the consciousness and made a viral impact into the present day. Uh, one thing we really like to do with this program, with dialogue, is to deepen your experience with these themes and history in our plays. And we do a lot of research around the process,、uh, and we like to share that with you. And while digging into the life of Afeng Moi, I came across an amazing novel entitled "The Many Daughters of Afeng Moi," written by Jamie Ford. And today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Jamie to the program. Welcome, Jamie. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Happy so- to be here. Uh, so I'm watching your、uh, interview on Today's Show with Jenna Bush, and I suggest everybody kind of Google that and follow it because it really is a great. It really is a great interview.、Um, but you were talking about、uh, doing research on a project and the rabbit holes you go down, and that's exactly how you. I found you. So I'm digging. I go down these rabbit holes and I find the novel. And found out later, I came pretty late to the party. I mean, there's some some of our patrons had read it. But just an amazing piece. It's an incredible book. Oh, thank you. And we were also very lucky in that、uh, Polly Buxton from Buxton Books was able to get us in touch.、Uh, so we're just really happy to have you with us here today.、Uh, to start out, do you want to give us just kind of some context of of how the story of Afang Moi fits into the novel?、Uh, you know, Afang Moi was someone that I I had known about for a long time, and I wanted to write about her. But you know, her ending. The real figure, her ending is ambiguous to tragic, and I'd been just dancing around with this character for a long time, and I I went down this rabbit hole about epigenetics, the、mm-hmm. idea that we inherit、uh, psychological traits, and I you know conceived a novel that created a matrilineal line from Afong Moy into 2045. So I've given her generations of descendants, and those descendants kind of echo her trauma in her life. And how did you like? I know for it's, oftentimes it's kind of like a voice that kind of comes to you. Like, did it? Did is it something you knew of once? Can you even look back and say where did you start learning about her? Or was there anything in particular that really spoke to you? You know, the first time I heard about Afong was in the '90s. I can't remember what year it was, but it was a full-page feature in the San Francisco Chronicle celebrating Asian American History Month.、Mm-hmm. People, people read those things. Yeah, and it it、uh, it. Had this timeline from the 1500s when some Filipino sailors arrived on the west coast of the United States, and there was a little mention there. It said Afong Moi, the first Chinese woman to come to America, takes the stage in New York City in 1834. And I, I tucked that in the back of my mind. And occasionally, I would go down these rabbit holes and try to find out more about her. You know, I splash around in newspaper archives and things like that, and I could find all of these articles written about her. 
but in all those articles, we never hear from her. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really wanted to give her a voice. And I, I really love what Lloyd So has done with this play in that he really has, you know, he's, it's nothing but Afong's voice mm-hmm. on stage and her experiences. It really yeah, is. It's, an, a great play. it's amazing piece. And then in your book, you wove it into many different kind of timelines. How does it, how does that, that one kind of seed kind of make its way into those other lives? Yeah, you know, I'm known for writing historical fiction, so splashing around in the past is, um, you know, that's kind of what I do. But I, as I said, I, I, I wanted to give Afong a beat of redemption. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to give her, um, you know, a, a bit of a happier ending. Not quite a happier ending, but, you know, redemptive is, is really the word. And by giving her these descendants, I could, I could really just have Afong... It's like her genetic material expressed in different points in time. It's really all these echoes of Afong. And so she's in the 40s. It's a character in the 20s. It's a character in contemporary times. And then again, a character in the future. And along those, you know, when she came here, she was, you know, she was an oddity. People paid to see her because of her otherness, of her bound feet, um, you know, the, the exotic uh, nature of you know just of who she was and the people that handled her they really monetized her otherness and throughout the book through these six generations we get to see how chinese american women are treated differently in each generation some things are improved and some things stay the same um, but hopefully when we get to the end it's a positive journey I think it was so brilliantly done in a novel, too. It's like it, it's, it does what a novel does so well in that we get this expanse and all these different stories. And in many ways, the play and the novel have that similarity of moving her into the future. Um, yeah. And the play, it's, it's the performers really kind of have their character and the audience's kind of character, so it kind of moves in. So kind of her impact is, uh, is, is really fascinating. Um, now, the, the generational trauma... Like, I, it, it's, such a, it's such an interesting way to kind of look at it. When we think about story, how do you equate telling stories and the stories with it and how that fits in with this trauma that goes through the generations? Oh, you know, if you think of, um, you know, when it comes to inter- inter, uh, generational trauma, there is often you know, there is a story component and it's, it's the things that our grandparents tell us of their hardships, whether that's mm-hmm. surviving the Holocaust or going through the great depression or fighting a war and things like that. And in a way, just through memory, we can inherit some of these things. It's, uh, you know, the, the oral history of the family, but epigenetics really goes deeper. It's, it's the idea that trauma affects the mentalization of our DNA, you know, without getting into the, the weeds of the science about it. Mm-hmm. But, it it changes the structure of our DNA, and then we pass down those sets, and so it alters, uh, you know, sort of the emotional trajectory and the physical trajectory of our descendants. There's been some fascinating studies of the descendants of Civil War prisoners, of the uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors, um, and it's uh, it's something that I think in Native American cultures and in indigenous cultures they've talked about inherited trauma forever. Mm-hmm. And therapists have talked about it. There's been specific modalities to address. I think Gwyneth Paltrow is a big fan of uh, Mm -hmm. one of those modalities with her therapist. But uh, in 2013, there was some 
research done at Emory University where they could finally show one traumatic event had been transmit across three or four different generations of laboratory animals. It was the first time scientifically they could they could show that this is happening. And that was a game changer. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's the underpinnings of this whole novel. It's fascinating. And, and then knowing those stories and like knowing the stories of the past, um, we work a lot, uh, with Martin Shaw, we just went to a workshop of his in England and he, he works on myth. And it is the stories that pass down and knowing those stories how does that fit in, you think, with, with uh, addressing, in it, not, not in a, like a, you know, a specific way, but like even just in the, in the way that when you engage with art, how that might, knowing those stories and telling those stories, bring about oh, yeah. some change, yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't just think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as someone in the compassion creation business. Mm. And I, I do think if you create art, whether that's visual art or music or literature, film, um, you know, whatever you create, if it if it can give your empathy muscles uh, a bit of a workout, I think that's a good thing. But also, if it can be sort of a, a heartfelt education, mm-hmm. and you you take that art and you inject that into a body of society, and I, I do think in a tiny way you can inoculate that society against the things that hold us back, you know, racism, sexism, classism, Mm -hmm. you know, all the isms uh, (laughs) that we have been encumbered with for generations. And I don't, I'm hopeful. I don't think we'll, you know, we'll see huge progress in certain areas for another generation or two, because it does take time. But, uh, but I am hopeful, you know, I'm, I'm a a stubborn optimist. Yeah. Such the important part of storytelling, I think, and, and, and finding that. Um, yeah, truly. Now, when we look at like, we love to talk process. We love to talk process and like inspiration. Um, how, when you go about, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, the many daughters, but like when you go about a process of creating these worlds, these scenes, these people, uh, and I know this is a broad question, but it's like, where do you, <laughs> where do you start? Like, what do you, what kind of, and I know it may be different for different ones, but what hits you first? Ooh, I, I always start with a premise, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in this case it was off on the way and I'm going to, you know, give her fictional descendants. I'll kind of build a story from there. But I, I, you know, I have a soft spot. I have a deep abiding weakness for love stories. So mm-hmm. no matter what I write, it always sort of bends into this direction of a love story, whether I, whether I want, want it to or not, it's kind of my nature. Um, and so I, I always start from a premise. Um, in my third book was about, uh, a boy who was raffled off at the 1909 World's Fair and mm. gave away a child as a prize. It's those kind of things that it's lost history. It's true. And when you tell it to people, there's this, you know, it's just moment where they're like, are you serious? Did that really happen? Yeah, that really happened. We were, <laughs> we were a different society a hundred years ago. We, we operated differently. And in that lost history, I, I try to explore those things, but I am half Chinese. And so, so much of, American history is told through a white European lens and right. not just a, a white European lens, a white male European lens. And so there's all these untold stories and I like dusting off um, those stories, like turning over and looking at the squishy thing. Yeah. So important and so needed. I mean, I think it's what's so great about the play too. It's like that you're, you're looking at it at an, in a much, from a much different angle. And I know for the performers, they have brought so much of themselves to it in that way because of, um, you know, where they've, where they've come from, where they've been. And then, 
being both in a place and out of a place, um, which is, you know, that's that great myth. And Martin Shaw told this myth about the Irish coming to England. And basically the myth was they lit him over on a white horse. But his, the minute he got off the white horse, he, he, would no longer, he would no longer grow. So it was basically he had to stay on the horse. So he was of neither <laughs> world. So, yeah, it's just uh, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah. Go ahead. When, when you look, um, you know, I had a great writing teacher way back. It's just kind of distill everything down to description and dialogue. And a lot about what the program is, is dialogue and what comes out through conversations, what comes underneath. Um, in we look at the different forms for a novelist, you're kind of responsible for the whole ball of wax. You know, nobody's mm, going to come yeah. in and interpret the way something said or kind of move in a different direction. How do you, how does that dialogue come to you? Do you, you know? Ooh, um, <laughs> you have to be, my, my first books were fairly simple in their dialogue because my characters are so young, they're, you know, they're mm -hmm. 12, 13, 14 year olds. Um, as I have older characters, as I have characters in different fields of science and things like that. You have to do your research for one, but then you have to be kind of an actor. You mm -hmm. have to, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little ridiculous, but you know, my wife, um, she kind of describes my office as where I just play with my imaginary friends. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's not far off because there's times where I am up here just talking to myself, trying to work out the dialogue and you have to play, you have to be everybody. Um, with a screenwriter, I always describe screenwriting. It's kind of and no insult to screenwriters out there, but um, it's like, it's like doing a, a blueprint of a house, right. but someone else does the electricity. Someone does the plumbing. Someone does the, you know, the paint and the roof. And with a novel, you, you do all of it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to dance with the details. And then you also have to, you know, bring these characters to life. And uh, an instructor that I worked with back in the day, he said, you should always write as though your characters have immortal souls. And so I, I try to do that. I try to try to make them very real. And it's always the best compliment when someone will email me or ask me like, are these real people? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if they're fictional, yeah. then, I, then I know I've done my job. Yeah. And it's such, a, I think that's so true of like, um, and then writers in general, I also teach screenwriting. I've done a lot of screenwriting. Cool. And in screenwriting, it is, you've got to do it all, and then you got to leave a bunch of it out, <laughs> and then somebody's going to yeah. translate it in a very different way. But Yeah, you have to, you have it, to trust that they're going to interpret your vision and not screw it up. Right. And for a novelist, I mean, I guess, you know, it's the you, whatever side you're not doing, I'm sure it's like the romantic vision of, well, it's all there and it's all you. But you do have to be everything. You have to be the director. You have to be the writer. You have to be the actor. You know, you have to set the scenes. There's so much you're just creating through those symbols on the page. Um, yeah. It, does that ever get daunting? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um you know, when it gets daunting is when I when I have to turn it over to other creative uh, minds. Honestly, yeah. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say daunting, but I, I have to divorce myself from my own expectations because I'm, you know, I no longer have my my hand on the steering wheel, and that's fine as long as you trust the driver, um, and that and therein is the rub of you know finding the perfect relationship to translate, uh, you know, a novel into a into a film. Yeah. Things like that. Now, are you in the process of that now with the many daughters of Wafang Moy? Yeah, the many daughters yeah. of Wafang uh, Moy has been optioned by uh, Jenna Bush's company, and she's she's really going for it. She's mm -hmm. optioned a lot of books. She's giving voice to 
you know, a lot of uh, people that perhaps in the past didn't have their voices heard. So I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of what she's doing. She's brought in a great screenwriter who's been working on it up until the writer's strike. Yes. But from <laughs> my understanding, as soon as the writer's strike is over, they're, they're good to go to start yeah. pitching. Um, so I, I 100% support all of, uh, you know, the striking writers. The, the world is changing yeah. and they need to be compensated fairly and they need to be protected against, you know, a- AI stripping them of their creativity and, uh, you know, harvesting their creativity and then repackaging it well, for free for someone else. So that's a whole other issue. But yeah, Jenna's, um, in her company is called a thousand voices and she's, you know, she's really using her, her superpowers for good. She's got a huge platform, huge audience, and she's a huge reader. You know, yeah. her mom's a librarian. And the, the great thing about Jenna is, I mean, we can talk about my book, but we can talk about any book because she's read everything. And yeah. um, it's just really satisfying to see someone that is in the public sphere in such a large way who is such a tremendous you know, advocate for for books and 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 literacy truly will you get will, will you in other words is it something you kind of turn over and then you're going to see it later or will you be at all involved in the process going through it um i'm an i'm an executive producer oh there you go um, yeah yeah to the extent of what that means um you know it varies from from uh production to production right in some cases it's very it's very ceremonial it's just worked into your contract but in this case jenna and her producing partner have been great at keeping me in the loop of checking in with me, asking me what I think about this. Um, you know, when they were looking for screenwriters, they sent me a huge list of 30 screenwriters and we talked about, um, you know, ones that we like, but I, I really trust them. Right. Um, they, it's a separate art form and I, I want, uh, you know, to trust that they're going to hire people who are fantastic in that field and then just turn them loose. And the person that, um, who's been working on the screenplays is amazing yeah. and has a track record that is, uh, is current and powerful. And, um, I, I hopefully want to be, uh, want to be a part of, you know, of her resume someday. Well, that's, um, it's such, it's so perfect for series. Like I was so happy to hear that it was going to be expansive because, you know, there's so many, there's so many, routes and ways to go and yeah. i bet i bet it's going to be very exciting to see yeah um, there's an interesting time right now because I, I do think we are in the golden age of you know streaming media mm-hmm. but we're also in the golden age of cultural cross-pollination where mm-hmm. we are getting out of our lanes and reading books and watching films about other people's experiences right. instead of going to the movies and it just being a mirror and we're kind of seeing ourselves and everything so i think it's um I think it's a really good time for this for the story to be told. And it's also when commercially, I mean, I think commercially those those types of um, we'll call them entertainment because I'm like you. It's, it's like when it gets to to be art or when it really starts to affect you, it starts to focus, you know, as more than distract. It's entertainment sure. and is it's really those things are doing so well. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Barbie and like Oppenheimer. Those those are these are thoughtful yeah. films and they're hitting on such a large scale. Um, so it's exciting to see. Yeah, it's nice, it's nice to see huge blockbusters that are not remakes, not mm-hmm. sequels, um, totally fresh, and you know some some different um, you know, some different people producing these things. So it's 
I'm excited. I, yeah. I'm very hopeful. Again, I'm a stubborn optimist. It's yeah. easy to be cynical and jaded and bitter. Um, and I have my down moments, but in general, um, I think we're moving in a, in a positive direction despite, you know, the noise and conflict and Twitter and things like that. Yeah. And when you do, so do you have, do you want to mo- work in other, me- other mediums? Are you thinking about film at all? Oh, I don't know, like maybe plays, you know, anything to that oh, effect? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've dabbled with writing screenplays, mm-hmm. but it is a very specific art. It's a very specific craft. And when people do it really well, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sort of bow down to their superior skill. <laughs> it's, I, it's just, I do, I think it's, there's a little bit of an arrogance to think like, and, and occasionally I'll teach like a writing workshop and there'll be someone who's a doctor, just like I'm a doctor, therefore I can write a brilliant novel. And that's not, those two things do not correlate. Yeah. And, and um, just because I can write a best-selling uh, novel or two or three um, doesn't mean I'm going to be a great screenwriter. doesn't mean I don't want to try. It doesn't right. mean I'm not on the side kind of just trying to figure this out. But um, for this production especially, you know, I, I, I want the best people on yeah. it. And when it comes to screenwriting, I'm not the best people. Well, I would encourage you to keep because it's so so much of both plays and screenwriting is the dialogue. It's it's what's carried underneath and through the scenes. And your I think your dialogue's wonderful. So you know I think it I think it really <laughs> kind of comes across. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, you, maybe I'll I'll jump off this call and I'll give it a shot. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, it's always it's always a good thing. And you know, with the theater, you know, we're here. If you ever is there anything you want to do. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, and, yeah. I, and I and I love I love theater. I love musical theater, and and, yeah. and I, I grew up in Ashland, Oregon, which is a theater town. So oh, yeah. I've just been surrounded by um, by the theater world and 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 the people in and about it. It's a great community. I love Ashland. I drove uh, all the way. I was in Seattle for a while in the '90s. I drove all the way to Ashland to audition for the Shakespeare Festival. So it was just a oh. beautiful, beautiful place. That's um, incredible. Yeah, yeah, great place. Yeah, going back to um, to the novel. So, what are you working on now? Like, what's <laughs> what's formulating? Yeah, as I laugh nervously, um, <laughs> and you don't have I'm, to. Like, you don't have to like. No, yeah. Oh no, you know, I'm usually pretty transparent <laughs> yeah. about everything I'm working on, and if I change my mind, you know, I'm human. I change my mind and yeah. throw something away and start again. I'm actually working on. It's like a historical crime novel. Mm. Um, and I, it's way more than that, but that's, you know, that's sort of the, the reductive statement. And I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a character to life that was pretty popular a couple generations ago mm. um, and has, and has disappeared. And I'm, I'm trying to reinvent that character. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, I've, I have <laughs> guesses, but I'll take those off air later. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you might suspect yeah. we're probably the same generation. Yes. Like, oh wait a minute. Yeah. But it's a character that fell into the public domain in the last couple of yeah. years yeah. and is kind of radioactive. But I want to uh, attempt a reinvention. We'll I'm, see if I if I stick the landing. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> very excited. Cool. Um, now, when you work on a novel, like we were talking about, you know, letting it out of the door, you know. When do you decide, and I think this is true for, for a lot of people who write in that medium, when do other people start to look at it? How much feedback do you take? Do you have trusted readers, you know, what, who uh, Stephen King calls it the ideal reader? How do, you, how do you go about knowing when 
it's ready. <laughs> I'm, I, I realize that I'm an, a total outlier in how I work. Mm. Um, I have friends in you know larger cities, and they have these writing groups, and you know, kind of a collective uh, group of friends, and they share work. I, um, I live in Montana, so mm-hmm. I, I'm not surrounded by people that do what I do. Um, and my first reader is my wife, my wife, yeah. Alicia, and she's a fantastic first editor for me. Um, and I, my work, you know, I feel really naked if I send something out that she hasn't read and edited and she's really honest. Like she, yeah. she just writes things in the margins. Like, yeah, I can tell that you wrote this at the end of the day. Cause it's kind of lazy writing. <laughs> like she's very honest with me. Yeah. She'll write like white girl moment. Like I have some <laughs> Chinese term that she has no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay I, I need that. Um, but yeah, it's it goes from her to my editor, um, and then I cover my agent on it. You know, some yeah. people have a like an editorial editorial relationship with their agent, and and I, it's not that she's not great at that, but I I, I want to minimize the number of cooks in the kitchen, and so she defers right. to my editor, who has purchased the book, who becomes the book's, you know, the fairy godmother, the advocate for that book. That's awesome. So it's really a it's some you know some. It's a microcosm of just a couple of people. She, you, she is quite literally the Stephen King ideal reader. I don't know if you've ever read that book on writing, but it's like that's exactly that's exactly yeah. how he goes. Um, that's how that's how we do it. Yeah. Um, so Montana, how yeah. how does that inform? That's such an interesting. It sounds like the solitude. The solitude. I mean, I, I, again, I'm hearing Montana. I'm assuming you're like on a like in the middle of nowhere, but that might not be the case. <laughs> but, but is yeah, yeah. how does that inform your work? And and is that type of peace? Is that type of quiet necessary? Is that like does that help? Um, you know, it it, it probably speaks to my uh, my awkwardly insecurity. Honestly, like I I don't want to live in Brooklyn where mm-hmm. you can throw a rock and hit another author. And you're always comparing yourself to other people and there's yeah. kind of a scene and there's a pecking order. And I'm just not a, I, you know, I've been to high school once. I don't need to do it again with my <laughs> career. <laughs> and I'm good. Yeah. I graduate, move on in the world. Yeah. And in Montana, I can kind of divorce myself from those expectations. You know, yeah. I have friends here that just know me as Jamie. They don't know me yeah. as, you know, Jamie, the best-selling author. And, and they don't care. Um, they're just, they just know me as a, as a person. I think that's, that's healthy. And I'm in Seattle all the time. I'm in Seattle where I grew up. I'm there almost every month. And so I do have my big city fix and I do have, um, obligations there that are, uh, more grown up obligations, if you will, um, that, that I need to do out there. But when I'm here, you know, it's, it's funny when I first, my first book was a huge bestseller and I, I'd go to the grocery store and people are like, you, you're still here. Like, yeah, I live here. I have kids in school. Like, yeah. they expect Salman Rushdie to roll up in a minivan. And like, <laughs> get in. We're going to New York. And uh, I'm just, I'm a West Coast kid, um, even though my mom is from the South. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I like the peace, I like the quiet. Yeah. Um, I do live in a town, about 50,000 people. But right. you go to the edge of town and, you know, the town stops. And yeah cows begin so it's awesome um it is very rural and i and i like that yeah and still children at home you know we are empty nesters now so oh. we survived. <laughs> i'm inches away we have our fifth oh. our 18 year old is the last one at home so yeah how is that yeah, we, yeah how's it informed you being an empty nester it's 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 set my writing schedule honestly yeah. you know, we, <laughs> we 
truly. <laughs> like, you know, I, I get up and I write. Yeah. Even now, my writing day stops at three in the afternoon because that's when the bus rolls in with the kids. And right. I got to be dad. So I'm I'm still in that pattern, which is which is fine. It works for me. Yeah. It's a good way to work. Um, but yeah, we had a blended family of six children. So we had a lot of chaos. And now um, we have six wonderful, interesting young human beings out doing their thing and making their way in the world. So, so, cool. so awesome. Well, Jamie, yeah. I could talk to you all afternoon, but we've <laughs> run out of time. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing yourself with us. Um, all the best you. in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone out there, go see this play. It's, uh, it's wonderful and you'll love it. Thank you so much, Jamie.